Our scripture passage this evening is found in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 8 to 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can brag. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Nearly all the linguistic knowledge that we have amassed up to this point in the modern world owes its data to Christian translators. I don't know if you know that. You know, uh, actually, of the many thousands of languages that are spoken on earth, only a few, very few, are worth the effort to translate. You know why? Because in human terms, it just ain't worth it. You need a market, right? If there's less than 10,000 speakers, there's no profit motive. There's no fiscal or commercial sense to it. And without a profit motive, creating a new bunch of consumers or opening up a new market, where's the incentive to ever translate? In fact, uh, that has kept translation from happening. There just isn't enough money to be made, and a large number of languages are spoken by even smaller groups, up to uh, groups of 150 to 200. Who would go through the years of learning a new language, its vocab and grammar and culture, and then translate into that language a message, and that message having no financial benefit? Who would do that? Missionaries would do that. And they did. <laughs> they did it again and again. And in fact, by doing that, thousands and thousands of missionaries actually translated and worked over the past centuries for no other reason and to tell folks about God's love for sinners in their language. <laughs> and, and, and oddly enough, most of the linguistic data available to the world, we're talking to pagans who don't know God, comes from missionaries. <laughs> and all of it. Because of all the work done. The tireless, selfless work done. To do what? To tell folks in their own language. God loved sinners. God loved sinners. One of the strange upshots of this, trans this translation phenomenon, this huge missionary project that Christianity, Christianity has been doing en masse since the New Testament, if you think about what you know, Acts 2 and what the Spirit does miraculously at Pentecost, the church has continued to do by a program, a siege, as it were, of data and slow translation. This huge missionary project that Christianity has been doing has garnered and gathered more information about linguistics, language, and human communication than any other group or institution in history. Now, you know, what's interesting about this now, with all this data, is that, of course, the modern academy has self-destructed. This is kind of funny. This modern academy has, meanwhile, self-destructed, you see. And academically, translation can't happen anyway. You see, ideally, you know, Caleb and I are isolated individuals who, who could only hope that by English we might understand each other. We might know each other. Who knows if we really do? When you go to other languages, who knows if we've ever successfully been able to communicate our thoughts, our emotions, our experiences in valid ways that, this, that the other hearer knows what I'm talking about, for sure. And in fact, as, as moderns and as relativism has laid hold of the, of the academy, has deconstructed the possibility of any human communication whatsoever. That kind of skepticism is not hard to imagine in this modern world. 
But this modern skepticism is wrestling with something that all translators are very aware of, even those missionaries. Language builds in its own limits. Like language does, there are differences in the way certain languages think, in their grammar, their vocabulary, and their culture. Somebody who observed this and realized how dangerous it was was Orwell. And Orwell was a brilliant man. He understood that different languages had ideas in their grammar that made them very different. And he imagined a world, a world that's coming right now, where, where men might start to manufacture language to eliminate certain ideas and create new ones and limit the possibilities of what you might be thinking or might even think is possible by simply eliminating words or eliminating certain words or changing their meaning. In Orwellian's dystopian nightmare, language is the way to control your mind. Grammar is the way to control your thoughts. I was listening recently to a, my favorite YouTuber, Lex Friedman, and Lex was born in Russia, so he speaks both Russian and English. And one of the things he talks about is Karamazov. I'll never read Karamazov in Russian. I wish I could. Because apparently, it's amazing. And in English, it's good. But in, in Russian, he said, there is a sense, sometimes even the syntax is communicating gloom and a sense of death. You can't capture that in a translation, can you? Languages invite us into new ways of thinking. New ideas come. New, new ways and new patterns of thought that we never entertained before are now possible because of translations. So what I'm thinking of today is what the writers of the New Testament, what they wanted to do when they were expressing that God loves sinners. Like, they had the same problem. They wanted to communicate something. You know, they, they had come this person, Jesus, who had come and died and rose again. And they found that Greek didn't really have the vocab that they needed. And they couldn't express what they wanted to express. Hebrew did. And there's a reason Hebrew did. God had been speaking in Hebrew to Hebrews for thousands of years. You know what that means? Over a period of time, they'd adopted a language that mirrored his thinking. You see, it was... And then when those men went out to go preach the gospel in a new world, this new Greek world, all of a sudden, they don't have a word for love. They don't have a good word for... For grace. They don't have a good word for faith. They don't have. We have to do our best to translate. And so, the Old Testament is a record of the conversation then for thousands of years between God and his people. Words have been adopted and used extensively to describe who this God was and what sort of love and rules he works by. So, Peter and Paul and company were all trying to write Greek. Greek didn't have the words. I shared this with you recently. One of the best pictures of this is the word agape. The word agape. The word agape in Greek was little used. You know what it actually describes? In ancient Greek, agape actually, it's kind of odd, it, re it reflects a feeling of refinement, kind of a refined pleasure in something. <laughs> it's a very, very specific, rare word before the church gets it. And they take that word because they need a word. They need a word that reflects the depths and the breadth of what the Hebrew language is beginning to express about the eternal love of a personal God who named himself in the world and comes to love people. There's nothing like our God, nothing like him in the world, nothing like him in any other religion. 
Nothing like him in the creations and the imaginations of men. He just doesn't exist. Let's take a look. So uh, they, they, they need a new word for spiritual intimacy, wholeness, and knowing. And in Greek, that parallel word, the Greek word for worship and love was eros. That was the word used to describe their worship of their gods. And that sounds just icky to me. So they use that little word agape. So when we talk about how hard translation can be, or when the modern philosophers deconstruct it and wonder if translation is ever possible, or if we're all isolated in our solipsistic universes of our cultures or our personhood, if that's all we're left with, we might be surprised to know that the Bible agrees with them. Did you hear me? The Bible agrees with the modern deconstructors. I always was surprised to think that as I was walking on the text. The, modern, the moderns are right. They're right for two reasons. Two reasons the scriptures put out there clearly. And the core reason begins in Isaiah 55. My thoughts ain't your thoughts. <laughs> My ways they're not Corey's ways. What does that mean? What, what's getting in there? What, what, what we realize, remember I said that there's a challenge of man translating to man? Maybe somebody from, uh, from Mexico translating to somebody in America. That's a human to human, different cultures. What is the barrier I'm describing here? Well, this gulf is much bigger than the gulf between me and Corey or Corey and any other human. The gulf we're describing here is between me and the divine, me and the eternal, the infinite and the finite. There is no meeting place between us. He is eternal. He is God. <laughs> and it's interesting that this presents us with an immediate translation hurdle. You see it? How, why do you do this? How do you do this? Is it possible? The second, the second thing is what the scriptures actually play out directly. And just in case you you didn't understand how different God was than you, the scriptures go out and they, they make it very clear. First Corinthians 2, Paul identifies all the learning of his age, all the wise men, this is what he says. Spiritual truth cannot be understood by humans because it's spiritually discerned and people think it looks stupid. They think it looks foolish. Translation doesn't work. All right, so I guess I should just quit then, right? Should I just give up? Should I, should I walk away? Obviously not. Obviously not. Because I'm right at this point. It's funny, this is a point that plays over and over again in the life of everybody who knows Christ. It happens a lot in the Testament. You get to a point where you just go with Peter. You just go, who can be saved? What are we going to do? How will we ever know? With man, this is impossible. You know what the next, the next clause is, don't you? But with God, all things are possible. So let's say we have a vocab lesson tonight. <laughs> let's say we just spend time with the vocabulary. Because I see three words here that I know don't readily lend themselves to an easy understanding, even of a, even of a, uh, especially from a modern perspective. Even Christians are given to try to understand. A lot of times we think we understand things and we don't. This is very bad for pastors. 
Because we can, we can develop our own trite little ways, packages, packaged understanding. Packaged understanding. You ever notice this? Packaged understanding isn't real. It doesn't get into the heart. It doesn't affect you. I don't want to package my understanding for you. I want the Lord to deliver it in real time into your soul. What other hope do we have unless the Lord act? As I pause for this moment, let me be very, very serious about this. You should begin right now to ask God to make what I am saying and the scriptures clear to you. Translation's not going to happen here apart from the direct grace and mercy of our Father. Let's seek it. You know, it's funny, if I get boring or if you feel like I'm off track or you wonder what the point is or you wonder if you can understand it, you must ask God to reveal himself to you. I'm just another man. Just another man. So, let's, let's, let's jump in then, uh, and I, uh, verse 4, and it was a very short text. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 8 and 9, very short, short text. And so we're going to look at these three words. Uh, the, the, um, the agape love that we looked at even last week creates an abundance. That abundance is now described by these three words, salvation, grace, and faith. And those are the three words we'll look at tonight. And we're going to take a look at those words, and we, can go as, we can't go as deep as I'd like because of time, but I'm hoping to find something in each of these words that maybe we don't often see or remember. And I'm hoping by the Spirit that we'll rediscover these words with freshness. And by doing that, we'll be encouraged in our hearts. Now, what is God expressing? Let's begin at the beginning here with salvation. Why does he choose that word? In his love. These are his love words. This is his love dictionary. This is his love language. And salvation is right here in this text. Salvation. And it's one of the Bible super words. So there's certain words in the Bible. There's a lot of, we're going to talk about Christianese a little bit, but there's a lot of Bible words about what Jesus is doing, right? Like what God's up to. Salvation's the big one. It's the biggest of all of them. It's the, it's the meta word. And it's meant to cover as an umbrella all the other words like justification, adoption, sanctification, all these different things that happen all happen under this great umbrella called salvation. And, ha- and salvation uses the word again and again all throughout the scripture. And um, it's so pervasive a term that it's a meme. I mean, do we have a Jesus saves neon sign in the city? I guarantee if we don't have one right now, we did it one time. We, did, we, did, we don't have one right now, do we? But we did it one time. You, you, anybody else? We, did, we do, we do. We have one still? We did. Okay. So we're just like every other city. Most of those Jesus save signs are in, in middle America. You can see them in most of the middle American small cities across the country. In some downtown mission, you'll see a red, it's almost red neon every time. I don't know why it's well, blood of Christ. Duh. And then it says Jesus saves, right? Jesus saves. The problem with memes like that is they become artifacts. You know what the concept of an artifact is anthropologically? An artifact is something that dangles. in the. It's like a vestigial organ or something. It just dangles in the culture. It doesn't mean anything. Nobody knows what Jesus saves means. What, Jesus saves coupons? What, Jesus, it doesn't, you know, Jesus saves what? what? Jesus saves money? Jesus saves time? What, what do you, in other words, it just sits there as an idea, but it doesn't root it to anybody or anything. So people recognize this idea, Jesus saves, but it wouldn't mean, it wouldn't be a comfort, right? It wouldn't be a message of hope. It wouldn't be an invitation. It wouldn't mean anything. 
So we know that Jesus isn't saving stamps. We know better than that. We know it's about God's rescue. But we don't often reflect on just what a strange word it is. I mean, saved implies all sorts of things. And more than any of the other words, it implies all these things. You, you, you have to, if you're saved, you have to be saved from something. And almost always when you're saved from something, you're saved for something. And, then you, and inevitably, if you're going to be saved for or for, for from or for, you're going to be saved by someone or something. It, it, it implies other agency, it implies, it implies telos or some end or goal, it implies or, it, all, this, all this stuff flows right out of the little word, <laughs> saved. And of course it's that, it's the from that I'm most, that I'm most wanting to, to speak and preach about. It's the one that I, I'm hoping will be life for us. You know, salvation is such a big Bible word. How can we grow in understanding? And um, there are two things that Paul has in his mind in this chapter here, especially in Ephesians 2, where salvation is being explained so fully to us. And that's this. I don't know if you remember it. God said he saved us from being what? We were by nature children of wrath. What is he freeing? What are we being saved from? And this is, what, this, is, this is what the scriptures teach. God is rescuing us from the demands of his justice. In a rather grim and uncompromising way, Paul has said that all humanity, this whole church, you sitting there before me, this whole city, this generation, everyone you know, ever met, God is furious at them, not you. Humanity is. And he are an enmity, and he has enmity against humanity. He is angry at sin. He is angry at the way he has been ignored. He is angry at the way this world runs after its evil and destruction. He is angry at the rejection of Jesus and the gospel. He is angry at the injustice and unrighteousness that humanity lives in. His view of God is unpopular in these days, to put it mildly. Who cares? It's the truth. And as we look at this world and what folks do in it, it's a wonder more and more to me that he doesn't merely let us be consumed. But his thoughts, you know what? They aren't Chris's thoughts. Remember that? <laughs> that's, the, that's the beauty of this. His thoughts are not my thoughts. That's why the scriptures say we are not consumed, by the way. That's why we're not judged. God was anything like us, he would have given up with us a long time ago. But his thoughts are not Chris's thoughts. Praise him. He saves, he rescues, he delivers. How? But this is where the salvation word comes into its own because Christ is a savior, a, a saver of souls by his death on a cross as a sacrifice. This is a sacrifice that is a substitution of Jesus in my place, in your pastor's place, because your pastor deserved to die, because your pastor is unrighteous. Your pastor is a monster in his soul. But God was set out to save your pastor. Praise him for that. 
His death on a cross was a sacrifice for me. This is a sacrifice that is a substitution of Jesus in your place as well. When you have faith in him and to be just, our God must satisfy the demands of justice penalty for sin. And that's death. So Jesus dies on a cross and takes on the punishment that was due to you and me. God sets this up as a salvation project in something he calls the incarnation. And this, this, it begins to make sense, a sense in the word salvation even invites us to read this sense into it, that by God, by God, the Son becoming a full human while still being fully God, he could do two things. Because he's a man, he could die as a representative of other humans who are connected to him. But because he's a God, he could rise again from death and actually reverse material decay. And this benefit is also given to those connected to him so what's the upshot here how do we define salvation simple we humans messed everything up and god came to fix it praise him (laughs) we get rescued that's the message remember what i was saying that this word was a big a super word it's an umbrella word in the new testament it means all of the benefits your justification your adoption your glorification all that all that all access to God, all fits in this word. You remember, you're always saved from something else and for something else. You were rescued for a purpose. Salvation means you're now specially saved treasure that God means to use to rescue other humans. <laughs> isn't, it, isn't it wonderful that we are a part of a project that a grace that would descend and condescend to this and that this could be telling you about God's love? That's wonderful. That's amazing. That's incredible. I, I should have never been allowed to do this. But that's grace. We'll get into grace. We haven't defined grace yet, so you don't know what I'm talking about, right? That was a joke. All right. Salvation means you're a specific, especially you're a part of a larger purpose and a larger package of God's love and work in this world. And just that itself is so much life and joy for us, isn't it? Even when we don't always understand what the purpose is, it's enough to know that love has purposes for us. That's what salvation keeps telling us. Salvation is saved to and from and by. <laughs> wow, it invites us into so much. Life itself, now, so it's, life itself now becomes a sense of constant appointment. In one sense, we are always asking the question, aren't we? Saved for what? What was I saved for today? What was I saved for in this moment? What was I saved for this hour? He was talk to you about Jesus and his love. <laughs> that was it. This is, that's my purpose in this moment. That's what I was saved for. You too can find and discover and move and act on, your, on the God's purpose for you. <laughs> what were you saved for, you wonder? And then a friend calls who's down. The homeless guy on the corner needs something to eat. A co-worker wonders why you could believe in God and ask you, why do you do that? you got to ask yourself again, why was I saved? It was for a purpose, for all of this. His purposes are always coming to your door. That's why he saved you. (laughs) Isn't it amazing that right inside the vocab of God, in his dictionary of love, is this word saved. (laughs) It is purposeful. It describes origins and the story of Jesus' love for sinners and his sacrifice on a cross. 
Translation is just getting started now. God is telling us about himself. Bridges are being built by the Spirit into eternity itself so we could understand divine love through these words. Father, I hope you're translating. I hope you're translating. Now let's take a brief look at the word grace. I distinctly remember this. I had a hard time with the word grace, mostly because of the way my mom used it. My mom had a habit of saying, we need to say grace. And I, I know you've heard that like when we would pray for a meal, even before we were Christians. So when I hear about grace, I always thought about praying for a meal. I was I, I, a kid, I remember that being really confusing. Like, it didn't, I didn't, God, I, it just didn't make any sense. As I'm older now, I can see why you would call that that particular prayer, a prayer of grace, because you're acknowledging that the grace is provision of God. But as a kid, I didn't, I didn't know that. I didn't understand that. And so here's where the Hebrew treasure trove of the Old Testament comes in handy. And you know that it was in Paul's thinking. When he says grace, he's operating out of all of that Old Testament breadth and beautiful description of the favor of God. You know, it's, it's a, it's, it, grace is one of those words that can, really can be, almost feel like you, you I almost feel, I, my entire premise of this message is based upon this principle. You must have the Holy Spirit reveal to you what grace is because it is that mysterious and strange. It's the idea of God's favor, His disposition towards us, the actual attitude itself of eternal love. Isn't that awesome? Its attitude is grace. His style is grace. His tone is grace. His eyes look at you with eyes of grace. He just, it's almost as if it controls every aspect of his interaction with you and me. Here in this text, it says we are saved by grace. Grace is adverbial here, right? It modifies the verb. Does it modify all your verbs? <laughs> it modifies all of his, all of his verbs. And the things he does. It's almost proper to the attitude and posture of God's. It's, what was I going to say? Beyond that, it's the favor given out of mere love. You know, you can see how this word then is used about beautiful movement. We say somebody's graceful. Because then I, when I realize I'm talking about God, I realize we are witnesses of his love in motion. He is so graceful. He is so full of grace. Our text uses the grammar of by grace to modify the word salvation here in our passage. Here, grace is adverbial. It describes the very nature and attitude of that saving. And that is what God wants you to know about how he loves. He wants you to know the very way he loves. The way he loves so lovingly. He loves grace style. <laughs> Even as I try to define it now, it can be tricky. It's something more caught than taught, it seems. Here's my best definition for you to use. Grace is God's smiling attitude of complete favor for sinners who don't deserve it. Recently, when Corey was preaching, he taught us a beautiful truth. Only when hope, only when hope is unreasonable does it become useful. In other words, when hope, all hope is gone and there's no, there's no reason left to hope, that's the point at which hope is useful. Hope isn't really that useful until there is no reason left to do so. But you know, I think a lot of God works this way. I think grace works this way. 
And it freed my heart deeply this week. I had this moment where I was thinking about that thought from Corey that the Lord used him to share with us. And I was, ima- I was looking Tuesday morning. I woke up to a litany of my own sins. I don't know if you do that or not. I do that sometimes. And my own brokenness was attacking me. As I sought to defend myself from my own conscience and my own list of my own failures and, and, all, the, and all the thoughts that assault the heart, as I'm sitting there battling depression and, and, and terrible thoughts, it occurred to me how unreasonable it was for God to love a monster like me. And this as I said it, just even as I said it in my heart, I went, of course, if grace isn't unreasonable, it's hardly great. Right? Like, like that, isn't that wonderful? <laughs> like, when, at the point at which God looks you in the eye and goes, it is no longer reasonable for the Lord of eternity and holiness to look upon a sinner like you without destroying you. Yeah, that's why it's called grace. That's grace right there. What a God. What a Savior. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. You know, I am. Um, you can say two things to your own conscience this week when you get down. These are the two things I'm going to be saying to my conscience this week. The first is from Clint Eastwood. St. Saint Eastwood sometimes has some really good lines. One of my favorites is from the movie Unforgiven, which really doesn't connect in any way with this message. This is this moment where he's acting as judge, jury, and executioner. Uh, uh, Gene Hackman says, this is, I don't deserve this. And he says those immortal lines, deservings got nothing to do with it. Deservings got nothing to do with it. Praise God. You were saying this would speak to you? Say it to your conscience. Your conscience says you don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. Look at those good things. You know, God just blessed us with a house. Now, my mom's old, old, old Irish stock. You know what my mom trained me to say when we were kids? Be careful when good things happen, because you know what that means? Something bad's going to happen. Really? Wait, is that in First Delusions? What, what, what book is that? Is it in Hezekiah? What, what book in the Bible is that in? Hezekiah's not a book in the Bible. Just stop looking at it. Those old nuggets of wisdom are not biblical because they don't really understand grace. Deserve. Say to yourself when it says, you don't deserve. You don't deserve. You don't deserve. You know what? Deserving. Got nothing to do. The second one, I like this as much. Grace means earning is out of the question. It's not on the table. It's not, it's not a factor. It's never present. It has never been present in your relationship with God. He has never looked upon you and said, you have not earned your place to speak to me, man. You have not earned. No, he never says that. He never. You know what? Per- oh, my goodness. I just love that. Um, I hurt my hand. These two statements describe how we're to treat our sin. It's how we're supposed to treat our inconsistencies and how they make us sick to our stomach. It's how we're supposed to treat our doubts when they plague us at night. 
With what? Deserving's got nothing to do with it. Earning? It's out of the question. Comfort yourselves daily with these words. Remind yourself always of grace and have an answer to your own doubt. You should be ready to answer even yourself, right? I think when we get this truth in us, it changes us. And it changes how we live, how we do life, how we, do, how we live with others and ourselves. Think about this too. I mean, I'm going to come out and say it because maybe some of you don't know it, but a bunch of marriages in our church have been fighting this week. I heard about that through the grapevine. I'm not pointing any fingers. Uh, I'll tell you all later if you want to know secretly who it is. Oh, but I'm kidding. I won't tell you. But they'll probably tell you because they were open about their brokenness. But, but you know what? I, I think, you know, it's funny. One of the things, we don't have time to park it even, but I just want to say it right here. When that grace changes us, then that's what we, that's, that, that's our message for everybody then. Do you deserve my love, Corey? You know what? Deserving's got nothing to do with it. Do you have to earn your way back after you mess, me, mess up or you don't, or you're mean to me or, you're, or am I going to make you earn it back or maybe you like to make your spouse, or I have a terrible habit to do with it. I don't think making you have to earn back after I get upset. And you see, see that eyebrow go up? Wow. That eyebrow was an entire sermon. <laughs> and it was just for me. Okay. Uh, but do you hear what I'm saying here? I mean, this is, this is an, this is, this, as it shapes our hearts, this becomes our posture. We do not demand other people meet expectations for forgiveness. That is a, t- Christians do this kind of garbage. I've seen it. Churches do it. People like, you know, they let me down. I'm, just, I'm holding out my, like holding off of forgiveness or holding off of liberality or holding off of love or holding off of gentleness or a withdrawing of, a withdrawing of affection or withdrawing. You want God to treat you that way? You want our Father to do that to you? How dare you do that to anybody else? We are to be a people, a grace style, <laughs> where grace drips off of what we say, where it's the adverb that describes our actions. Amen? Holy Spirit, let that translation happen. But let's look at the third, the third, the third word. So God's love, word, love has words and vocabulary. His dictionary of love tells us that Jesus' love for sinners speaks a different language. God's love for sinners is why he saved us. God's love for sinners is why, when he saved us, he did it by grace. <laughs> but it gets even better than that. Our final vocabulary is, is the cherry on top. It's God's love for sinners. It's why he saved. Grace is how he saved, and faith is the means by which it all happens. This is the final vocab word. It's the word that takes the save notion and this grace quality and finally makes them personally ours. Faith. Now, whole volume has been written on every one of these words I've used tonight. The most vocab lesson is pretty short and to the point about stuff we can use. That's what I'm trying to make things we can use. And it's fresh our hearts. Give us new joy and comfort. And especially when to slip past and break through Christian cliche, right? Get through the cliches that we use that are so powerless. But the word through in our translation, you see that? One of the, I want you to pay attention to the linking words to talk about the vocab. We are saved by grace through faith. I remember Dr. Gerstner and I having an intense debate about this. Dr. John Gerstner, many, many years ago. Because what is faith's role here? 
You know, it's funny, Paul goes out of his way. Look, look how he makes a clause after the statement. It's by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's like, don't make the mistake of thinking the faith was the one good thing that Scott could do, <laughs> right? The one saving thing that Gina finally came to was faith. No! Even the faith is a gift. Even the faith is a gift. Even the Oh! We don't have faith in faith. We have faith in Jesus. <laughs> Faith doesn't save, it's the object of faith that saves. And faith is merely this mechanical, as it were, instrumental cause in our salvation. It's a catalyst that either adds or subtracts from the old equation, but it makes it happen. And it's a mystery of eternity, how we receive a faith that sounds like it's ours in our own mouth. But there it is. (laughs) There it is. That's what faith does. Now... The through word, though, I thought, you know, it's kind of a bottleneck almost. You know, the saving idea is, the saving idea is pretty big, right? It's this huge word that gets all these other words packed into it. Grace concept, well, it's love dancing, you know? It's God dancing in love. It's, 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 in, it's the moving, it's the way he moves to save us. It's the gracious way his love bends towards sinners. But faith? Faith is the bottleneck. Those things are so huge, they're as big as eternity, but all of a sudden, if you don't have faith, that doesn't go to you. If you don't have faith, it doesn't land on you. If you don't have faith, you're not connected to any of this. Faith. This is, this is old hat to a lot of some of you, I know. Some of you have heard these before. Well, let's make some distinctions before we go, and, and, let's, and, and then maybe have some encouragement in our faith. Um, first, the first there, there's some elemental mistakes in translation that happen. First, it's a mistake to think that faith is knowing things. I don't know where this comes from, but it's very real. We know it's true. We know that it's true that you can know every... Le- you could know. You could memorize feasibly. If you say you had a photographic memory, Athens, eidetic memory. You could memorize Genesis 1-1 all the way to Revelation 20-something. 22, is it 22 chapters? should know that, shouldn't I? And it won't save you. I know that. You know how I know that? Because the scriptures tell us that demons actually know the Bible from Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation and doesn't do anything for you. Knowledge does not save. Knowledge, what do we confess in our time of confession today? Knowledge puffs up. It leads to vanity. It leads to conceit. It leads to self-righteousness. It leads to death. It's an easy mistake to want and difficult to identify at times. We all like knowing stuff. We can be very good at knowing stuff. <laughs> A lot of stuff. And it can easily make us look like experts. But the problem is, it's, it, it, is, that it's not, it, is that you can look like an expert with a Bible because most people don't even know their Bibles, so it's pretty easy to pull off. But you can be fooled yourself into thinking your, your grasp of data is equal to understanding. And your mastery of the material means you personally know God. Um, I'm a really good example of this. Early on, in my, especially early on in ministry, I think, I was more concerned with being smarter than everybody than knowing God. I'm very ashamed of that. That was not faith. Right? That wasn't faith. No wonder I was suffering so terribly at the time. <laughs> For all the wrong reasons. 
That's not faith. You know how we always know it's not faith? Because a trial comes along or a temptation, and suddenly all that knowledge just goes right out the door, and you panic. <laughs> oh, it's not faith. Let's go a step further. Sometimes people think assent is faith. I, I learned this a long time ago, and I learned it to my detriment. One of my elder leaders in Atlanta, he was a charming brother. He's a good friend, actually, in a lot of ways. But he had a tendency to always nod when I would speak. Always nod. And I made a big mistake into thinking he agreed with me <laughs> about important things. I found out later he didn't agree at all. He was just a nodder. Are you a nodder? Do you assent to all the things that God says? Do you nod to my sermon? Good job, Corey. Don't hurt yourself. Uh, be careful. Assent is not faith either. That I've seen this brinkmanship in the church where men and women know so much and they ascend so deeply and they, and they talk with glorious tones about theology because theology is, it is intellectually beautiful. And trust me, it, it is cathedral-like when you get into it. But don't have a personal knowledge of God. No. Uh, this, the, the one that the CFC, many Christians, this agreement, it's, you know, it's um, when everyone's joking at the bar and making fun of an evangelist on TV who just morally failed, this person starts joking about what idiot Christians are, too, just laughing as hard as everybody. No, no, it's not. What is it? It's putting all your eggs in one basket, as Mark Twain would say, put all your eggs in one basket and watch that basket. I love that. <laughs> I think that's a great. You ever heard that? Don't put your eggs in one basket. Well, Mark Twain had a kind of counter to that. Put all your eggs in one basket and watch that basket. That's what we're supposed. To, that's what faith is. It's the full trust and the full embrace and the full grasp, both hands. You know, it's funny. It's not about deserving or earning. If you're deserving or earning, you're coming to God with something in your hands. You can't do that. The only way to express faith is with both hands grabbing Jesus. It's a wholehearted, full commitment of belief and trust in him for your salvation. Now, I'm going I'm to use this as an illustration. I, should, I, meant to do, I meant to do this before. Sorry. One, one second. Give me a second. I don't usually do it, but here, it just occurred to me. I love this illustration. I'm going to use it anyway. I think you can use this in a restaurant. I think you should. People say, what's faith? And you know, I have knowledge of this chair. I have knowledge of this construction. I can take a look at it. I know what metal is. I could say I know the chair would support me. You've heard these arguments before? you heard the skill illustration? I could talk about my knowledge of the chair. I could assent. I could agree with you if Caleb said, no, that chair will support you, Chris. I said, I agree with you 100%. But Caleb could turn around and say to me, Chris, you know the chair will support you, assent to it, but I don't see you trusting it. Right? I don't see you trusting the chair. Because we all know to trust the chair, I gotta plop my big fat butt in the chair. That's what faith is. Faith is you putting your big fat spiritual butt in the chair. It is complete and utter trust. You see, I put my fifth my feet up. I'm trusting this completely, Dalton. You're taking the record of your guilt and sin and shame, the accumulation of your debts, 
the accumulation of your offenses against a holy God across a lifetime. I want to trust in that and not in myself. I want to trust in Jesus. The reason I give this illustration is you can teach people this. This is a good way to show people the difference between knowing about God and trusting Him. Have you trusted God? That's the next question, right? Right out the gate. Before, as we end our brief vocab lesson, faith has one more thing as a word, as a concept that I want to encourage as we close. Because faith, faith then reveals what that saving and that grace has done. Did you get it? Faith is in itself empty. I love that. It's just empty. You know, in the end, it's funny that we come back to faith because faith finally sets up the platform that all of our salvation is of Him, you see? It's, it's our final acceptance of that and, our, and, and our, our admitting we can't do anything. Faith is us running into grace, you see, and claiming that salvation as our own. Faith is standing in these eternal words and walking in them. Faith is taking to take flight so that my motions now are gracious. So grace is my adverb too and yours, amen? Faith does this. Because faith finally is you finally saying, I cannot translate your love even for myself. I need the Holy Spirit to do it all. I trust you, Jesus. I trust you to take away my sin. I trust you to make me a new person. I trust you to make me whole. I trust you to take me to heaven. <laughs> you see, oh, I just love this. I just, faith, just totally trust him. Not in itself anymore. I hope this vocab lesson has been helpful. Let's pray. <sighs> Father, I, <laughs> I pray that you would uh, do the work of translating your love and grace to us. You would translate to our hearts. We can be so stubborn and foolish. Heck, I don't... <laughs> I don't even know half the time if I understand half the things I say. That's the way I really want to in you. These truths are so deep, much deeper than me. Papa, would you, would you, would you work in folks now? Would you, would you in this moment be, be working in our hearts to, get, to give us a clear view of your saving love? Would you just give us... Maybe there's somebody tonight here who, who, who maybe it's been a long time since they had joy like this, or... Maybe it's a, they've always they've wanted it and they want to chase it, or they've always felt it's just out of reach. Father, will you speak to that heart? Will you speak your saving grace by faith to that heart? And then, Father, and there's a lot of old Christians here. People have been Christians far too long for that's good for them. And uh, yeah, they they really need to hear that new in new ways, Father. Will you retranslate for us old Christians? Will you retranslate these words into fresh, into fresh life in our hearts? We pray that for the glory of Jesus. Amen.